Welcome to Rock Harbor Church's channel on Sermon Audio. We hope this message is a blessing to you and helps you in your daily walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, settle in and grab your Bibles. Here's Pastor Brandon with this message. Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come together tonight and study your word. And uh, Father, as we study about suffering and we study about the crown of life and this reward that's very important, um, help us to apply, help us to live this out because it's a difficult subject and uh, it's hard. And so uh, we need wisdom, we need understanding, and we need direction from you, Father, from your word. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, we, we looked last week on the, uh, the doctrine of, of rewards and uh, we were we're studying. We were studying. Uh, let me go back here to uh, James. Uh, this is James chapter one, and James talks about the crown of life. There are five crowns that are given as rewards. Not all believers will get these crowns. Um, this is given to those believers who do exceptional, uh, a particularly exceptional job in a particular area, and in the uh, uh, crown of life area. Uh, you can see this in James, and then we're going to look at uh, the church of Smyrna tonight. The crown of life is given to believers who suffer well in their life. That, that um, their suffering uh, doesn't stop them in their growth, it actually accelerates their growth. That their suffering doesn't prevent them, um, uh, you know, that... Uh, you know, from getting all embittered and angry and depressed and all that stuff that, that, that suffering can bring on you and getting twisted off by, uh, with God, uh, that actually they become more Christ-like uh, through it. What happens is if you look at most of life uh, as, you, as you, you live it, uh, you start suffering at, at a very, very early age. And um, uh, suffering, is, you know, it, it hits everybody. And typically people, when they're, they're younger, and especially if they're not Christians and they don't have a Christian environment, maybe they, maybe, they, maybe they do go to a church or whatever and they do go to a Christian environment, but the pastor or the, the teaching uh, of that church doesn't teach them how to suffer, how to endure, how to persevere through trials. And typically churches don't want to talk about that subject because it's not a good subject that draws people um, because, uh, you know, it... it, it, it the churches are trying to do a feel-good message, right? So they're not going to talk about suffering. They're not going to talk about pain. So a lot of churches leave their people with no ability to handle the way life is. Life is harsh. Life will beat you down. Um, life will kill you eventually. That's how bad life is. You're in a hostile environment, and this is the best way that I could come up with ever since the fall. You're, you're, the environment is actually working against you. The, the environment is, 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 with hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, or whatever, is not a, 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 a peaceful environment to be in. It's a very hostile environment. And, and when we live in the West, um, a, lot of, a, a lot of us have corralled, so to speak, uh, the weather and whatnot, and it doesn't affect us too much. But if you live in a third world country or even second world country, the elements... Bear, in, bear a major problem on you. And even the animals bear a major problem on you. If you live in third world countries, that's, that's one of the, the major problems uh, is the environment. Well, sometimes we're immune to that, but, but, but we still have earthquakes in California and whatnot. But in first world countries, what I tend to see more happen uh, is that the sin of others, our own sins, uh, tend to affect us more. 
Um, and uh, in, in, in that's, that's a hallmark through all human history. So early on, what will happen is not only are you affected by the fall, uh, people die, uh, people get sick, you know, things that you can't control happen because of the fall, but then the sin of others and our own sins contribute to that. And, and then if you add in the demonic warfare and the, and the satanic warfare and, and the world system that Satan controls, then you're up against another enemy. And so you instantly have like four things working against your life early on. And most people are trying to manage life the best they can, uh, and they find ways in life to survive, Okay. And they do their best to survive. Humans are very good survivors. There's no doubt about that. But the things that humans pick in order to survive sometimes ends up killing them as they try to survive temporarily through the pain and, and the, the circumstances and the people sinning against them and their own sin and Satan coming against them and whatnot. So what tends to happen is Satan will use that against the people and pound them into, ground, into the ground even further because they typically will pick coping mechanisms um, uh, to cope that are not biblical, and those coping mechanisms kill them. And coping mechanisms, as you know, the real easy ones are like, you know, drugs, alcohol, sex, uh, you know, some types of outlets or something like that that people choose to cope but other people cope by burying emotions, shutting themselves off completely. Other people uh, uh, try to deal with life, with relationships. So they go from relationship to relationship to relationship, and they have multiple relationships, and they just can't ever figure out why they can't find the right person, and they're on an ongoing search. So they'll try to satisfy this, this coping mechanism with relationships, and that doesn't work typically. Um, and then they'll try to satisfy it with maybe um, jobs and career, uh, a certain career path and achieving things and jobs and whatnot. And, and that ends up uh, really going nowhere. That becomes a coping mechanism as well. And so what ends up happening to humans is they're suffering, but they're not suffering well. So then they become Christians. And, 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 and again, People who soft sell the gospel will say Jesus is a life enhancer rather than a life rescuer. And so they become a Christian by coming to faith in the Messiah, but then they don't go any further than that. And once you realize that you know, coming to faith in the Messiah is the first step, then you start realizing that the, the process of sanctification is a process of suffering. And it's a process of denying yourself. And it's a process of taking up your cross. It's a process of letting go of, of the coping mechanisms and letting go of the way you managed life. And that's a hard pill to swallow because that means you have to die to self. And a lot of people don't want to die to self because they're afraid to leave the coping mechanisms they've established in their life. Because the coping mechanisms help them to survive. And now Jesus is telling them, I'm going to take away your coping mechanism and I'm going to give you a biblical coping mechanism the way I want you to handle things and they won't let go. They just won't let go. And that, it, that stops their way of suffering. They suffer still, but they're not suffering well. And if you don't suffer and use the biblical tools to how to suffer, then you uh, get twisted up you get mad at God, you get angry with life, you get bitter, depressed, vindictive, critical. All these bad traits start coming out in the person. 
okay? And the older they get, the worse they get. That's how it works. You don't get better when you get older. You get, you get worse if you don't tackle these things. So someone, if someone's bitter at 25, can you imagine them at 75? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't get any better um, and, unless that stuff is arrested. And a lot of times it's not, unfortunately. So one of the things that you'll see uh, is, you know, uh, we, we saw last week is, you know, James and, and, uh, and the other New Testament writers are saying, you need to learn to suffer well. He says, count it all joy. We looked at that. And you're like, what are you talking about? Well, there's things because of suffering that God can do through you and bring good things out of it. Obviously, it, it, the, you will look like more like Christ the, the better you suffer. And, uh, and, and so one of these rewards that, are, that is in concert with suffering well is the doctrine, sorry, is uh, the crown of life. If you get the crown of life or any of the crowns, there's five crowns, that means you rule and reign. You get to rule and reign in the messianic kingdom forever. And uh, that's a position that can never be taken away from you. And um, I, know, I know ruling and reigning doesn't sound good in this world maybe because like if you're a boss and you're in charge of a lot of things, the last thing you want in heaven is more responsibility. <laughs> that's, I, that's it. And you're telling me that I have to have more responsibility in the Messianic kingdom and, and you know, I'm going to be overburdened. No, it's not like that. Uh, and so you have to think in different terms that it's an easy rule. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a rule that you can manage, that you can do, that you're created for, and actually it will be very fulfilling and meaningful to be able to do that. It's not like, you know, trying to run your own business and dealing with California or trying to deal with the state or the city and trying to make things work and how stressful that is. It's not like that. Uh, it flows very well. You're going to want to rule. I can guarantee you that. Um, but most, most believers will not. That's just the fact because um, very few people do get the crowns. It's, it's, it's made for, they are made for an act of reward for someone who has a life of suffering well. It's not a one-time thing. It's a whole life. So one of the things we want to look at is the persecuted church, is, is the church of uh, Smyrna. And this church is promised uh, to get the crown of life. And so, uh, obviously, the seven churches of the book Revelation represent, uh, as a whole, the church age. Um, and there's, different, there's three different ways you interpret the churches. You interpret the churches as what happened in 95 AD. Um, you, can, you will interpret the churches as all seven uh, happening concurrently in every age. But then, through church history, you will see there's a dominant church in church history that characterizes this particular trait. And, and, and Smyrna dominates the era between about 100 AD to about 313, and that is uh, probably uh, what we call the official Roman persecutions of the church. And there was 10 of them during this period of time. So this is when Smyrna uh, is, is uh, in the church age. Um, the, in 95 AD, when John is writing this, uh, obviously the believers in Smyrna were having their, their trials and tribulations there, and he's going to speak to them 
for their local condition, but then Messiah will broaden out the application to the Smyrna church of that era and to uh, us as well for the crown of life. So it's a, it's a, you gotta have a threefold interpretation in it. So the first thing he says is to the angel of the church of Smyrna. Now, the, like I said in the book of Revelation, you'll see all seven churches. Every church has an angel assigned to it. And so, again, the message is going to the angel, the watcher angel, and, and it's not the pastor. If it was pastor, it would use a different Greek word, but it uses the word angel in the Greek, so it's referring to an angel. Why is that? Because an angel, every church has an angel assigned to it that is a watcher angel. That, that angel is a protector angel. He's the, the, the church's angel that protects them from the demonic forces, that protects them from the fallen angels and whatnot. And that church, uh, sorry, that angel will then serve as a witness to that church at the Bema seat as well. And so it's not only a witness, but a protector, a guardian angel, a sentry, whatever you want to call them. But every church has an angel. Rock Harbor has an angel. Every church has one. So... Um, this angel then will stand witness to the participants of this church uh, when they are judged at the Bema seat as a witness of suffering well in, in their case. He goes, uh, uh, by the way, Smyrna is a derivative of where we get the word myrrh from. That, uh, they actually in Smyrna made myrrh and that's what they sold. One of the products they sold in Smyrna was myrrh. And myrrh, obviously, um, was an embalming. Uh, it was used in embalming and for burial. Um, and uh, so it, the, 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 the product they sold is associated to death. Even though it smells good, that's what they would put all over the body to prevent the smell of the, the decay. They put the myrrh on the body. So it has a sweet, sweet smell but it is for death. It is, so they're, they're, they're in, hence, hence the name goes with what they're suffering. He says this, write these things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. And so automatically the first and last is identified in Re Revelation chapter one as the Messiah. And, and the Messiah is claiming to be Yahweh, obviously, and he is Yahweh, the second person of the Trinity. And that's why the first and the last, that's an Isaiah passage reference. So you're dealing with the Messiah who is the God-man. But one interesting thing about Yahweh is that he was dead and came to life. And this is what the Jehovah Witnesses that sit in the park can answer. When he asks them, then, um, who do you think is speaking in this passage? And they say, well... It's the Alpha and the Omega. It's the first and the last of Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45. And then, yeah, but look what he said. The Alpha and the Omega is saying he was dead, but he came back to life. So who is that? And they immediately switch it to Jesus. And it's like, well, no, it's the same person. It's the same one. It's the Alpha and the Omega. And that person, that Alpha and the Omega is Jesus. And he's claiming that he was dead and came to life. So how can you say the Alpha and the Omega didn't die? Because he just said he did. And they get hung up and they were like, well, I don't want here to, I'm not here to argue. But it's, it's, when you hang them up with the text, you know, it's hard to deny what the text is saying. It's Jesus talking and he's claiming to be the Alpha and the Omega of Isaiah 45, 44 and 45. Okay, but notice what Jesus says. Who was dead and came to life. Now, what is that a reference to? It's real simple, right? The resurrection. 
that he was crucified, he was dead, buried, and rose on the third day. So why does he say that to Smyrna? And this is the key to understanding how to suffer well. What is Messiah trying to do? They're suffering, and he just told them what? I suffer too. In fact, I suffered more than anybody has ever suffered. I suffered more than the cumulative suffering of all humanity put together when I went to the cross. I took on everyone's sin, and I suffered more than any human being has ever suffered. I suffered eternally, actually, because I'm an eternal being, the God-man, and because I took on all the sins of the entire world, I suffered more than the cumulative suffering of all humanity of all time. So when he states that, what Messiah is doing is creating a connection point for suffering. That we have a God that suffers, or that suffered more than any of us in this room put together, ever, for all, all of our lives. We can never outsuffer what the Messiah did. Now, that's not to one-up us. It's a connection of relationship with him. That's what it's there for. And, and what he is trying to tell them and us and any Christian that does suffer is if you want to suffer well, the first thing you must understand is you must be connected to me, the one who suffered the most. Because suffering, once it starts happening to you, puts you in a position of disconnecting from God. You will run away from him is the typical reaction of people. And typically the reason they're running away from him is because Satan has convinced them to blame God for what is happening to them. Now their mind will instantly go there. And so they become a theologian and thinking that, well, if God is all powerful and he's all loving, why didn't he stop this? Why didn't he prevent this? And that is a very satanic tactic. But that happens to everybody. And they, they, the people don't instantly, when they're eight years old, being sinned against, go to the point of, that's coming from Satan, that's coming from my stupid parents, that's coming from my stupid brother, that's coming from a crazy person, that person's nuts, um, they're, uh, they're mentally ill, uh, it has nothing to do with me. No one thinks like that. No one thinks like that. When they start get, having suffering, the first thing they do, blame God. He has the power, why doesn't he stop it? This is what creates atheism. Most atheists are so angry because they're mad at God for allowing something to happen in their life. Allowing hypocrisy, parents, whatever it might be. So what Messiah is trying to do is create a connection point of understanding the, the suffering. The suffering that you're going through, I suffered too. And understand, I'm not the one, to, I'm not the one who's making you suffer. It is other factors. So why did Jesus die on a cross? For his own sins or who else? For others. He didn't die for his own, because he had no sin. So he's trying, even in the death and resurrection of the Messiah, it is us who created the problem, right? But who tempted Adam and Eve? Satan. So you have the factors all being, if you understand the death and resurrection of the Messiah and you understand the reasons why, then you can factor in the four factors. 
Satan, the tempter, caused Adam and Eve to fall and sin. So you have two, two issues a- answered right there. And then the sin of others is answered because now humans will start sinning against each other. And then the curse is the ground because of you. And number four is answered in the fall. So if I look at Christ on the cross, how does he represent the fall? What, what, what is on him that represents the fall? Well, sin, yeah, but there's actually a tangible thing on him that represents the fall. So he's stripped naked, right? How were Adam and Eve created? They had access to a living tree. He goes to a dead tree. Okay? You see? He voluntarily allows them to strip him naked. Like Adam and Eve were created. And then when they sinned, they realized they were naked. And the shame that came from that, right? Okay. Curses the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles will come from the ground because of that. And your work, you will toil through your work and in the sweat of your brow. He's stripped naked, but he's wearing one thing. A crown of thorns. The crown of thorns is pointing back to the thorns and thistles that will come from the ground, which is a curse for the fall. He's wearing the emblem of the fall on his head. Okay, so if you, look at the, if you look at the death, burial, and resurrection, you have all factors being, so anyone should say this, why is he on the cross? Why did he go to a cross? There's four factors. Satan, humans, humans sinning against each other, and the fall. All encompassed by why he is suffering. So that's why all creation groans for its redemption. Because not only does he redeem us, but then once he redeems us, he redeems all creation because it's cursed, right? So the creation groans in anticipation for its own redemption. So, so the fact that, that Messiah is saying, look, here are the reasons you're suffering. It's not God or me doing this to you. Did I allow it? Yes, but I will tell you why I allowed it. But there's four factors that are affecting you. So the first thing you need to do is not blame me. And, and so the, in suffering, that's where you have to arrest yourself. Does God allow the things to be brought into our life? Of course. But that is different than causing. If you go into the mode of thinking God caused you to suffer, then you will, you will instantly want to get away from him. You will instantly want to distance yourself from him because you think he's the problem of why you're suffering. So you distance yourself, and that's what causes problem people to walk away. So this connection point is being established by the Messiah. And he's saying, you need to come to me because I have suffered more than anyone for all these, these other reasons that we're going to account for. And here's why you need to come to me instead of run from me. You need a connection in your suffering. The more important thing in your, in your theology is understanding why theologically you need to connect to the Messiah. Okay? 
we understand theologically who Messiah is, but if you want to suffer well and heal from the pain, then you must connect to him for healing. Okay? You have to let God in. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that people do is they don't let God in their, their suffering because they're blaming him and they're putting him, pushing him away. So this is the essence theologically of what people need when they're suffering. They don't need a theological treatise. They don't need to know the answer why because that, that's not ever going to be answered a lot of times until you're on the other side of heaven. Um, like I said, with James, he was saying, the knowledge you ask for wisdom is, is what does this suffering do for me? Um, you, know, you know, what am I to learn theolo- uh, 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 spiritually about myself through this? But this is where it all begins, is the connection. So this connection point for healing of letting God in, inside of me, in my heart, to heal my, heal my heart, starts with understanding, So when Messiah says, I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore, he is saying, I understand your suffering. I understand it better than you you do. I understand you. So one of the connection points that people need in their life is that someone understands them. Well, if you break away from God, you're breaking away from the person that understands you. Okay, that's, that's why people get worse when they break away because now who are they gonna go that can understand them? Now, <clears throat> they might find other people and this is a good thing sometimes. They'll find support groups of people that have been through the same stuff and that's great and we have those and stuff like grief share and divorce care and all that other stuff and that's great. Uh, and you need that. You need to have other people that have went through the same thing. But, even at that point, your suffering is unique to you. You might have went through a divorce like other people, but your divorce is unique to you. And no human can, can go there. So you have to go to the Messiah because only he understands the uniqueness of your suffering. Okay, He understands every, every facet of it. And so you need that. You need to be understood. Second thing is you need grace. (coughs) Grace is, uh, by definition, obviously, um, giving you something that you don't deserve, okay? And what is it that God wants to give you that you don't deserve? He wants to give you a relationship with him. Okay. Now, obviously, uh, the relationship with him starts with knowing Jesus in salvation. So, so I, I'm going to not, not deal with that because I'm going to assume that you, you've already started your relationship with Jesus. But, but grace is how you are to operate with God. This is why it'll say like people have fallen from grace. It means that they're not functioning with God in the terms of grace. They're functioning with God in terms of legalism. And if you're functioning with God in terms of legalism, then you're rules-oriented rather than relationship-oriented. It's relationship first and then rules second. You have to have the relationship first and then you follow him. It's not rules first and no relationship. It's, it's grace. It's relationship first. So in that grace, he gives you something that you don't deserve but you need. 
And in that grace, he gives you acceptance in the Son. You're accepted. And, and, and that acceptance has to do with you not having to prove anything to him anymore. You not having to try to earn anything with him anymore. You not trying to be a good boy or a good girl to him anymore. Because if you've come to faith in the Messiah, he already accepts you. Now, a lot of people can't accept that. They don't think that God can just accept you based on a relationship with Jesus. They think they have to prove themselves to God. If you think you have to prove yourself to God and you're going to work and try to earn his favor and earn his grace, you're not functioning correctly and you're not going to get it. You have to come to him in understanding that, that he wants to give this to you. It's offered freely, but you must accept it and not think that you have to earn it. Now, if you struggle with legalism, if you struggle in your relationships with others based on uh, you, know, you doing good works, and that's how you get acceptance in your relationships, you're going to struggle in this area. Because I can tell you this, if you're going to function with God based on rules, you're going to fall. You're not, you're not going to make it. You're going to fail, and you're going to feel ashamed, and you're going to walk away. And so a lot of people I counsel, they're dealing with God based on a rules-oriented thing. Well, did I, go to, did I go to church Sunday? Yes, checkbox. Did I go to Wednesday night? Yeah, checkbox. So I must be good. And they base their relationship uh, on these works on God. And what ha so if they're good for a month or so in their checklist, then they think they're in tight with God. So if they start doing bad and not going to church, not doing this, not doing that, works, then they think their, their relationship is bad. So they're basing their relationship on a contract rather than a covenant. If you have a contract, it's this, I do good for you, you do good for me. If I do bad, you do bad. And it's contractual. And if you have the mindset that I'm going to come to Jesus in a contract, um, you're going to miss it. You're not going to connect to him because he doesn't connect to you on legalism. He will connect to you on grace. Okay? Second, uh, one of the other things you need is uh, we got acceptance, but we have empathy. Uh, one of the big things that everyone needs to, to have in their life is someone that can actually empathize, which is different than sympathy. Um, empathize means I know what you're feeling. I have felt that myself. Um, and, and that's why like, people who have went through the same tragedies can really empathize with each other. If you haven't went through what someone has went through, then the best typically you can do emotionally is sympathize with them. Uh, but sympathize, sympathizing means that I'm going to try to be emotionally there for you and connect to you even though I have never experienced that. And you can do that, but it's different than empathy. So Messiah, because he takes on the full bore of our sins, can actually not only sympathize with us, but he empathizes with us. And, say, and he can say to you and me, I have felt the same feeling that you have felt. I feel the same way. I felt that. I was betrayed. I was abandoned. Um, you know, whatever, the, what, whatever you're feeling, he empathizes with that. He feels it. 
The other thing he does is he validates it. Now, initially, in validation, we're not here to correct. In, 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 in grace and in relationship, the first thing you have to do when you're having a relationship is validate the individual. So Christ is validating. He's saying, I, I know what you feel like. Now, the correction will come second when that truth comes in. And truth is part of this, okay? But we don't go there first, and neither does Christ, because Christ comes in grace and truth. So the validation happens. You're feeling this way, aren't you? Yes, I feel this way because I believe I was this, that, this, that, and this. So the first thing that the relationship does is validate that. And then it corrects it later, okay? Because if you don't validate the person, you, 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 you don't take their feelings seriously. And they can't connect if you don't take their feelings seriously. So people typically get on their high horse initially in relationships, and the first thing they want to do is correct. Correct, 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 correct. And that's not how it works. The woman at the well, and Jesus is dealing with the woman at the well, the first thing he does, he doesn't correct her, he asks for a drink of water, and then he establishes a relationship with her. It's very quick, but he does establish a relationship with her, because um, no Jew would ever ask a Samaritan to get him, give, give him some water. And um, then they have a little uh, theological debate that he does, he, um, that again is engaging, and he's establishing a relationship and then, after he establishes the relationship, then he corrects. Go get your husband. Well, he's not my husband. Yeah, I know he's not your husband, and you've had five before. So, he's validating her. Thank you, man. Um, he's validating her, but at the same time, then uh, later on, corrects. So, don't worry about correction at the beginning. If you move then to truth, then you, then you have to, then what Messiah wants to do once he validates all your emotions and understands how you're pain, now it's, back to, it's about going back and let's bring truth to the situation and shine the light on what's really happening. So this is where you must go back into your past. Okay? You must go back into your past. Not to blame people, not to become a victim, but you have to reprocess what happened to you with truth. Okay, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, so when, when you have a relation with Jesus, it's always based on truth, okay? So you're to go back into your pain and analyze it and process it with what is true. Not what you thought was true, not what you perceived, not what you, you rewrote history with. You actually have to use the truth. And you go back into your pain and you bring truth to the situation. And the truth, if you use it correctly, will set you free. But if you refuse to go back and process anything with, without truth, you will not be set free from your pain. You will not be healed because you refuse to go back in there and do it. So the writer of Hebrews calls this a root of bitterness in chapter 12. And that if you don't access grace, and you don't ask for help from God, and you don't process things with truth, then a root of bitterness uh, uh, starts becoming stationed in your soul. And it stays in you. And the only way you can get it out is by truth. So 
<coughs> the writer of, of Hebrews is warning about this. Um, and, and so a lot of people, um, they have a root of bitterness that, that is in them. They, they sometimes even know it, but they won't get it out of them because they don't want to do the hard work. The hard work is actually reliving the pain. And people don't want to feel pain. I don't, I don't blame them. It's hard to feel pain. Uh, and and to, to, to go back to painful memories, to go back to things that happened to me, um, is very difficult. And, and most people say, I don't want to relive that. But I'm telling you, if you don't go back and relive it with truth, you're never going to be free. You will carry the pain with you until the day you die and you will never be released of it and you will lose the crown of life. It will not be given to you because you, ha you haven't suffered well. In fact, what you have decided to do is suffer in a bad way and, and have bad pain, unredemptive pain in your life. See, there's two types of pain. There's good pain that's redemptive and that's you going back and me going back and reprocessing things, what happened to us with truth and getting that out. And then there's bad pain where we just sit on it and nothing happens and the pain just keeps going worse and worse and worse and the root of bitterness grows a tree in us and sprouts fruit and we're carrying that burden, we're carrying that pain and that's called bad pain because it's unredemptive. It doesn't do anything for us. It actually makes us worse. So you have to ask yourself, what pain are you willing to deal with? Redemptive pain or bad pain? Because you're going to get pain either way. It's your choice. And if you choose this one, you set, get set free. It's not overnight. It's not overnight. It's actually a process. It takes a long time, many times, years sometimes. People ask me, well, how long does it take? And I said, well, how long were you traumatized? And they said, well, you know, from eight years old to 12, I was traumatized. I said, okay, so you probably need to double that. You're going to have to probably double the trauma. So if you were traumatized for four years and we're barely starting to work on it now, give yourself eight years. That's how long it'll take. And people don't want to hear that. People don't want to hear that it's going to take that long. But it does. And that's, it's, it's, that's, that's just the way it is in pain, because there's a growth process. There's, there's, there's a whole learning curve that has to happen in the trauma. So most people want a magic pill from the doctor and say, it's over, and I'm past it. You, that's, not how, that's not how pain works. You must embrace that pain to let it go eventually. So if the trauma was four years, double it, it now means eight. I can guarantee you if you work the process correctly, at the end of eight years, you typically will be set free. You'll be, uh, the, the, you'll, you'll be able to have closure and move on. Okay, but you have to do the work. You have, to, you have to be in for the long haul. And that's why it's so hard. And that's why Messiah is saying, you have to connect with me through this whole process because truth is gonna be a big deal. And then you have to give up what must be surrendered. This is a hard one. So coming to the Messiah, he obviously is going to ask you to sacrifice. If you have a relationship with Jesus, the first, that's the first thing he tells you to do. You have to sacrifice. You have to take up your cross. You have to deny yourself. What am I denying myself of? Well, in pain, I have to deny myself of the coping mechanisms that I have adopted that are not biblical. 
And this is the sticking point for people. Because you're telling me I have to give this up. Well, this is how I've managed life for 20 years, Brandon. This is how I've managed life for 30 years. And you're telling me I have to give up these coping mechanisms. Yes, if you want to be set free. If you don't want to be set free, just keep doing the coping mechanisms, which are slowly killing you, by the way. So giving up what must be surrendered is the hardest thing to do. This is the sticking point. So... Um, it could be a lifestyle, it could be a, an attitude, it could be a behavior, um, it could be a number of things. It, it does, it's not just one thing. But you have to give up whatever has become a sugar stick for you. And a sugar stick is probably the best way to explain it. And why do we, we call them sugar sticks? Because like a sugar stick that someone, uh, you know, like a sucker or something like that, someone goes to, the person goes to it every time in order to cope with life. And it doesn't come from the Bible. It's something they developed. And, and that sugar stick is hard to give up. So the problem is, if we take your sugar stick away and you're left with no coping mechanisms, that puts you in a bigger problem too because then you don't know what to do. So what happens is you have, a ha you have to have the principle of take and replace. And the principle of take and replace is if I'm, I'm going to take away your sugar stick, I have to replace it with a, a biblical coping mechanism. So I have to take the sugar and give you the biblical coping mechanism. And, and you have to do that. Because if, if I take away the, the coping mechanism from you and, and you won't do the, the biblical coping mechanism, you will flip out. In fact, you will spin out and probably go back to the sugar stick, but go back worse. Because there for a while, you won't know what to do. And you're just kind of floundering out there. So this is in, in, in the counseling situation where we have to work with the person of saying, okay, what are you replacing the sugar stick with? So if drugs is your sugar stick, if whatever, video gaming is your sugar stick, uh, I don't know, drinking is your sugar stick, what's the biblical thing you're going to do? Well, maybe it's going to a Bible study instead of sitting home alone by yourself doing nothing because you need the interaction of other people. Or maybe it's reading your Bible, not just for five minutes, but actually pouring into it for like an hour. Or maybe it's praying for an hour or, or something like that. Or maybe it's talking to a counselor, maybe it's talking to a pastor, but something that's edifying you on a spiritual way so that you don't go back to the coping mechanism. So that's what he's asking us all to do, is get rid of the coping mechanisms. Then asking. And you're like, what do you mean asking? Messiah deals with us not only in grace, but he will deal with us in one of two ways. He gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. That's a principle all through the New Testament. Grace to the humble, resist the proud. So what does asking have to do? Messiah is wanting you to ask him for help. I know that sounds like juvenile, and, and that sounds like elementary, but you will be shocked of how people think in their minds that they got this one. That they, they, they have life figured out, they have life by the tail, and they can do it on their own. And if you're in that mode where you think you've got a grip on life and you don't need to ask Messiah for help, 
then you will be resisted. He will give grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. If you're so prideful that you won't ask for help from him, then you're not going anywhere. You have to come before him. That's what Hebrews chapter four is about, that you come to his throne of grace for help, for grace and mercy. You want, you want help, I need help. You have to ask for it, okay? Past, present, and future, what do you mean? Well, one of the things you're gonna have to do with the Messiah as you connect to him is you're gonna have to be honest about your past, you're honest about your present, and honest about your future and be willing to surrender the future to him based on what's happened in the past, what's happening in the present. And this is a hard thing for people to do because they have their dreams, they have their visions for their life, they, they have their, their goals of how they want their life to be, and, and all of a sudden, what he's about to, ready to tell the Smyrna church is, I know you're suffering, but I'm bringing you more suffering. Now, how would you like that message? You're suffering now, but I'm bringing more. That's what he tells Smyrna, as we'll read it. So what ends up happening is you, you, you have to be honest with him that, that your life is in his hands, and the way he wants it to go will be up to him and not you. And that if he decides to bring more suffering in your life, then you will submit to it and not resist him, not protest him, not run away. But he's asking, will you let me have your life? And if I bring more suffering, are you going to be okay with that? Because that's what he's going to tell them. Based on past, working through the past, working through your present, and him dictating to you what's going to happen to you in the future. It's a hard pill to swallow. That's where a lot of people start backing up. Because they, you have to ask yourself, are you totally confident that Jesus can navigate your life even if he brings more suffering in your life. That's a hard one. You're gonna to have to deal with your failures and use your failures to help you. So he's gonna bring those up. Your dreams and desires are gonna to have to be submitted to his dreams, and his dreams and desires for you, not us. And you're gonna to have to submit those fears to him. What are you afraid of? Well, the primary thing is, if I lose these coping mechanisms, I don't know what I'm gonna do. And if you tell me that my life's gonna get worse, then I don't know what I'm gonna do, so that makes me afraid too. Okay? And then I need your whole heart in all of this. I don't need a part of you, I don't need half of you, I need you fully committed to me if we're gonna get through this. Okay? So if you see that all right there, that's called connection. That's called connecting with the Messiah. It's called having a personal relationship with the Messiah. All those factors are involved, okay? If you decide not to connect to him, it doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means you're in a disconnected state. Because in a disconnected state, all you have to understand, it's, it's the absence of everything I just went through. It's the absence of understanding. It's the absence of grace. The person will say, well, Jesus doesn't understand. And, and they, they, won't, they won't use the truth to go through their past. And they won't surrender. They won't ask for help. They got this one. They won't talk about their past with Jesus. They won't, they won't surrender wholeheartedly to him. And so they remain disconnected. And if you're disconnected and you suffer, you're not going to suffer well. Let's continue on. I want you to see 
how intimately involved Messiah is with our sufferings. In Psalm 56, 8, it says, you number my wanderings, and the wanderings means um, like a vagabond, like I didn't, I've been wandering all over the earth. And, and so he's basically saying, you know my past of where I've been, where I'm going, you've numbered them, okay? You've put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? And the idea is he knows our grief. He, he knows every aspect of suffering that we're going through, through our wanderings. Psalm 56, it's a great verse. This is the, 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 the point in Hebrews, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was on all points tempted as we are yet without sin. The idea is he knows what we're going through. Let us therefore, here's the promise, and here's the ask. Let us therefore come boldly or confidently to the throne of grace. Notice not the throne of rules, it's the throne of grace. That we may obtain what? Mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He promises, if you come to me in the name of the Messiah, in your suffering, I will help you. But you've got to do it my way. Okay? You have to connect to me. Now, let's go back to Smyrna. I know your works. So Messiah, because he's omniscient, because he's the Alpha and the Omega, knows everything you're going through. Doesn't he? Of course. The tribulation, this ellipsis in Hebrew, uh, it's not Hebrew, uh, Greek, it means I know the pressure and the crushing that you feel in your life. Like when they would crush the myrrh to get that, that liquid out, of that, it, it, it's a crushing aspect. And he says, I know the, the, the crushing pressure you're under and the poverty. And, and the idea of the poverty is referring to is the financial poverty. Because what happens here is when they're, they're under tribulation and, and in this situation, they're having Jew-on-Jew Jew persecution and they're being kicked out of the synagogue and they're losing their jobs because no one will hire them and no one does business with them. So they go instantaneously into abject poverty. So they're, they're, they're being hurt financially for being a Christian. And again, initially this is Jew-on-Jew Jew, uh, persecution. But he says, but you are rich. Rich how? Not, not, spirit, not uh, uh, physically, but spiritually rich if you suffer well, because you will have rewards. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. He's referring to the non-believing Jews persecuting the believing Jews in Messiah. He goes, they say they're Jews, but they're, they're a synagogue of Satan means they're being controlled by Satan to persecute you. Satan is the one doing this to you, not me. Okay? Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Wait a second. You see what he just said? I know you're suffering, I know what's happening, but you're gonna suffer more. Don't be afraid. It's a command, don't be afraid. How do I not be afraid if you tell me I'm going to suffer? I, that's my natural inclination is to be afraid. The one thing that will kill fear is faith, okay? So faith has to overcome the fear. So what he's asking them to do is trust me. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. And the only way you're not gonna fear about what you're about to suffer is to trust me that I am allowing this for a purpose and a good reason. Indeed, what he's saying, 
The devil, who's doing it? God? No, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. So he tells them the reason why I'm going to allow more suffering is I need you to be tested. I need, to see, I need you to see where you're at in your faith and to see where you're lacking so that we can build you up and get you to the point where I need you to be. So what I have decided to build up your faith is I'm gonna allow tribulation for 10 days in your life, okay? So in 95 AD, this might've happened for 10 days, but we know in church history that there were 10 official Roman persecutions of the Smyrna church era. And it started with Domitian in 96 and all the way to Diocletian in about 305. These were 10 official Roman persecutions. And this is probably what Messiah is referring to that I'm about to send the church persecution for 10 days or basically 10 official persecutions. Now, the question you have to ask yourself, why? I'll tell you why. If you look at the chronology of the churches, there's an answer to this. Ephesus is the apostolic church where the apostles are still alive. And then they're, they're, they're taking a lot of things for granted because of the, of the access to the apostles, but then they die off the scene, the second generation takes over. And the second generation takes a lot of what the apostles gave them for granted. And they forsake their first love. So to correct the church for forsaking her first love, which is not putting Jesus first and taking everything for granted, Messiah then sends the church persecution to wake them up. So that's the answer on, on a church history scale of why he allowed 10 official Roman persecutions is to wake the church up. And at that point, the church did wake up and it expanded greatly because of that. Now, the same thing might be true with us. Why does he allow the suffering? To wake us up, to get us out of the stupor that we're in, to grow us, to increase our faith, whatever. He has a good reason for it. The significance of 10, let me point this out. There's 10 utterances from God during the six days of creation, 10 dreams in Genesis, 10 curses during the fall, 10 commandments of the Mosaic law, 10 praises in Psalm 150, 10 nations named the Abrahamic covenant, 10 generations in Matthew and Luke. What is the whole point of 10? What's the significance? Well, we go to Hebrew gematria to understand that. And what we have is that 10 represents a unity or a plurality of, of, of uh, made up of parts. So it's a unit made up of parts, okay? So the number 10 is traditionally a symbol of fulfillment and a return to unity after having gone through the experiences. So the experiences are 10 experiences, but it's a unit. It represents that the person has went through a successive amount of experiences. So the experience is represented by a single digit number. And so 10 symbolizes the concept of totality or an all-inclusive thing. So when Messiah says you're gonna suffer for 10 days, how would we apply that? It means the totality of all your life. It's all inclusive is what he's trying to say about your life. So that's how you would apply the 10 days to yourself. It's all of your life, it's all inclusive. And, 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 and Messiah will determine how many successive different sufferings you will have until either the rapture or the day you die. That's what the idea is. So it's a whole life thing. That's where we get the concept from. Anyway, be faithful unto death. To so be willing to do this, even if I ask you to die. And I will give you the crown of life. That's how you get it. Okay? Unto death. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the idea is, you can hear this or you don't have to hear this. It's up to you whether you're going to do it or not. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, why would he say that? Well, um, it's a, a litotes, or lilates, it's pronounced both ways. When he says, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death, it's a figure of speech. And if the figure of speech affirms the f- a fact by denying its opposite. So John, basically, when he says you're not gonna be hurt by the second death, well, that's a passive reward. If you're a believer, you're not gonna be hurt by the second death. But what John's trying to emphasize is the crown of life. So he emphasizes the negative to emphasize the positive. And the positive is the crown of life, which is an act of reward. And so that's what he's trying to say is focusing on the crown if you continue to do this because that's what you will get from all of it. So that being the case then, this comes back to even what Jesus said. If anyone desires to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what is a man gave in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in, in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Notice it's a reward issue, not a salvation issue. People use that passage wrongly. It's not, it's not saying what is a profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul. That's not referring to salvation. It's referring to the person, the believer, not willing to give up their life for his life, to, to suffer well, to, 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 to take up their cross, to follow him in those suffering. And so people who, who, who decide not to suffer well are not giving up their lives. They're not willing to give up their life. And that's, that's what's what Messiah is trying to conclude. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.